Lord, we sing this with great confidence, knowing that our salvation is not in ourselves, not to us to define, not for us to secure, but that you have borne the cost of our sin, that you will hold us fast to the end. As your children have come to trust and know you and love you, we know that our confidence was always in you and is in you alone for eternity. For those who know not Christ, we ask that you draw them to the light of your truth, that you would by your enabling spirit work to draw them to that salvation that is free and rich and eternal in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Let me tell you a very familiar story. Long ago, only two people walked this earth. They lived in a flawless environment, imagine it, no natural disasters, no pollution, erosion or weeds, no harsh winters, sickness, genetic weakness, disease, or death. Their relationship with one another was unmarred by sin. They walked in sinless fellowship with God, whom they loved with unspeakable joy and devotion. But as Adam and Eve drank deeply of the pleasures of God and the perfections of Eden, a cataclysmic battle shook the spirit world. The highest ranking angel, Lucifer, chose a path of pride and rebelled against God. God stood, Lucifer fell. Expelled along with the angels who followed his rebellion from God's glorious presence. They were separated. Enraged by his failure to unseat God, Satan turned with bitter resolve to wreak havoc upon earth's moral order. He crafted a plan by which to seduce Adam and Eve into joining his rebellion against God. Now, Adam and Eve had no reason to fear. They had the impenetrable armor of God's word. They had the impregnable wall of God's fellowship. To retain paradise, they needed only to obey God's word and that single prohibition designed to test the genuineness of their love for their creator. But Satan laid a trap for Adam and Eve, planting doubt, distorting truth, denying God's word. He enticed them to assert their self-autonomy against that word. Enticed by lust and pride, Adam and Eve dropped the sword of God's protective truth. They failed the test of their fidelity to God. They fell headlong into sin, and we have fallen in them. Paradise, we know, was lost. War, sickness, poverty, depression, corruption, pollution, natural disasters, disease, death. They mark our lives in this cursed world. And Satan and his army of demons continue to stalk earth's inhabitants, stoking the rebellion against God at every opportunity. Our struggle, warned the Apostle Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are always under attack 
from a spiritual army whose assaults come in the form of seductive appeals to our cravings to reject God's Word, His life-giving Word. This army strategically lures and persuades and entices, tempting us to resist God's will and to disobey His Word. And as we do, sin ravages our lives, undermines our joy. It spawns bitter consequences and it corrupts our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. But we gather today singing. We gather today rejoicing. We gather in hope and celebration because our hope is found in the Word made flesh the Lord Jesus Christ, who stood against Satan's assaults by deploying God's written word and who has come to rescue His people from their sin to give us eternal life in Him. As He has done this work, He leaves for us a pattern to follow, a pattern we find in Matthew chapter 4 as we continue our series in the Word of God and consider the significance of the Word of God in this passage and how Christ's example leaves for us a pattern to follow. First of all, the setting of this scene in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word then connects chapter 4 with, of course, chapter 3. And the events that take place in chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus uh, taking place in verses 13 through 17 is particularly in view. This marks the official starting point of his earthly ministry. And remember there in verse 16... As the heavens are open to him, he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is critical to remember as we move into chapter 4, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So heaven opens to make this statement about Christ, then Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What radical shift takes place here. But as we consider this phrase in 3.17, this is my beloved Son, God has spoken. There's nothing for Jesus to prove. From eternity past, Father and Son have eternally existed in intimate fellowship along with the Holy Spirit. This Jesus is that Son. And so it was, after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, that He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's close communion with the Spirit that Jesus heads westward from the Jordan River up into this stretch of rugged, desolate territory known as the wilderness, about 15 miles deep and 35 miles in length running along from the top of the Dead Sea, from the north end of the Dead Sea up the, alongside the Jordan River. It's an uninhabitable wasteland, the haunt only of shepherds in search of patches of desert grasses for their flocks. So it's easy for Jesus to find solitude here. And he devotes himself to a long season of prayer and meditation and fasting in preparation for his earthly ministry. But the reason the text cites for his isolation in the wilderness is more specifically here the Spirit leading him up 
For what reason? To be tempted by the devil. And we know the Holy Spirit is not seducing Jesus to sin. God cannot sin. He cannot tempt others with sin. But as with Adam in the garden, or let's say with Abraham in offering Isaac, God does lead people into places where they are under the assault of Satan. He will face here severe satanic temptation. Jesus clearly did not live a life of perfect obedience because God tipped the field of battle in his favor, like he was always running downhill against Satan. To the contrary, he's led here to a severe temptation, more than anything we'd ever understand, more on that in a bit. But he faces a brutal showdown here with Satan in a wilderness, a wilderness the like of which Jesus, or rather God tempted and tested in that sense Israel's dependence upon him as she was wandering through the wilderness. She's in the wilderness having to depend upon God. Jesus is in the wilderness needing to depend upon God. Keep that in view as we work through this son, this beloved son of the Lord. Verse 2, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. One of those great understatements of the Bible. But after 40 days of fasting, Jesus is at the utter limits of what a healthy, younger human body can endure by way of fasting. After several days of fasting, the craving for food begins to subside and goes largely dormant until whatever length your body can handle, and Jesus being young and healthy gets to the end of that period of time that a body can stand. But when the hunger pain returns, it it returns with such a vengeance that one will eat almost anything. If human flesh is all there is to eat, that will suffice for many people. The hunger is that intense. That's where Jesus is. So his vitality is gone. His body is desperately weak. It's probably covered in sores, his head pounding, his empty stomach screaming for food. And his human spirit is utterly drained of natural fortitude. He totters on the verge of death. Now it's in this vulnerable stage Satan entices Jesus to satisfy his hunger without depending on on the Father, to just move around that issue and to satisfy your flesh rightly on your own terms, Satan tempts him. We're taught then in this first temptation in verses 3 and 4, as we follow the example of Christ, to deploy God's word against the lure of fleshly lust. Verse 3, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, the Greek construction helps us here. It's often translated, since you are the Son of God. Assuming for the sake of argument, this is the truth. It's been established by the very voice of God in 3.17. Well, if that's the case, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Knowing this territory, 
strewn on the desert floor in this wilderness are innumerable limestone rocks. The story was that God had given an angel the whole world in which to distribute these rocks and his bag broke over Israel. There are so many little rocks, hand-sized stones in this area. It's an ingenious and vile enticement. Because in that day, one of the staples of the Jewish people was to eat these loaves daily that were just a lump of dough and so would have been about the size of these rocks, just a a small round piece of dough. So in, in look, as well as in size and proportion, those stones could very well look like a piece of bread. And I don't know, but perhaps Satan even just holds it out before his face and says, make this bread and eat satisfy your hunger. Why torture yourself any longer? You've fasted long enough. Eat. Jesus could speak that word. Proves that later in His ministry. He could prove prove to Satan who He is. He could satisfy His desire for food. But Jesus understands that to do so at Satan's initiative would bypass Jesus' reliance upon the Father's authoritative word. There is a word, in some sense, that is outside of Jesus, that is external to Him, in some sense, within the triune being, and He must walk in fellowship with that word. His actions must conform and synchronize with that word from above. So Jesus chooses to spurn his hunger and rely upon the Father even if it means death. Jesus makes this choice by standing firmly on the Word of God. Notice this. It's by appeal to that external Word of God that Jesus stands against this temptation. Verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, he recounts Israel's wilderness journey between Egypt and the promised land. Do you remember how they made that journey? The glory cloud, the cloud shrouding God's glorious presence went with Israel, indeed led Israel. So when that cloud moved, Israel moved through the wilderness. When that cloud stayed over the tabernacle, Israel stayed encamped right there. It might just be one night. It might be a month or more. But whenever that cloud moved, Israel moved. And there were times, many times, when that cloud moved Israel into places where there was no food or water. Places where they absolutely had to rely upon God for sustenance. It was in that context Moses writes, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. I don't think there's any mistake between 40 days of fasting and 40 years in the wilderness. But there, that's a different point. But that he might humble you is why he brought Israel there. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And let you hunger. He let you hunger. He fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know 
So he led you there, he let you hunger, he fed you manna that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus perceives this is where I am. I'm in a wilderness without food, in utter dependence on the Father. And Satan comes and says, at my initiative, at your own initiative, decide for yourself to make food. And Jesus says, no. Unlike Israel, he will rely upon God to supply his need on God's timetable, in God's way. He must feed on God's word until God permits him to satisfy his bodily desires faithfully. Hear that. He must feed on God's word until God permits him to satisfy his bodily desires faithfully. So Satan tempts him to listen to his body's natural craving, but Jesus knows this is no way forward. He will wait on God's timing, rely on God's truth. The desire for food is not evil, nor are a thousand other natural desires that we have, but we battle the temptation to fulfill such desires on our own terms, in our own strength, according to our own timing. I think it's a very direct parallel then in the life of godly young people who are following Christ They mirror Jesus' example here by sexual obedience, by way of example. The cravings of sexual desire are not evil in themselves, and they can prove very intense. But in obedience to God's counsel and command, godly young people trust His truth, His external truth. They wait on His timing. They reserve sexual relations for marriage in a world that says that's just stupid. you got to try it out. They choose to live by God's Word, not by the dictates of their desires, as Satan pressures them to act on those desires how they choose, how they want, what they think is best, what feels right. And in a thousand other ways, it's just one example, a thousand other ways God's people choose to live this way. And let us know and let us establish here again, this is radically countercultural. What is at issue in our day philosophically through many generations and many different philosophers and where we have come now at this place in our nation's history, what is at issue these days is this. Is there a source of truth that is higher than mankind, that is independent of mankind? And our world says no. Reality is not perceived by faith in some external source of authority. Reality is perceived by my own senses, by my own cravings, by what I, how I see myself, what I want, what I feel, what satisfies me, what is best and right in my mind is what is best and right for me. There's a whole world that is moving us here to think this way. It calibrates our thinking this way at every turn. Nothing transcends my desires. 
No one can tell me what's best for me. I must discover that for myself. I determine my identity. I determine what I do. I believe this philosophy, just by way of another example, is why Christian parents so often will not correct their children when they stray where they should not stray, where they touch what they should not touch, and relate selfishly to others. As we relate to our youngest children this way, such parents may not understand what they're doing, but they're actually being pressed in the, into the mold of our world And they so often fail to correct or steer their children because they're unwittingly influenced by a culture that insists that a child's self-determined feelings and intuitions are sacred. So where those little feet take them, what those little hands touch, what those little mouths say, we must stay out of the way and let the self determine where it will go. We're pressed into that mold. To insist there is a standard, that there is an external authority outside the child to which he or she must always respond is pure heresy in our world. Now as we've learned this week in one state in Australia, illegal to steer and direct one's self-determination particularly with respect to sexual issues, can get you 10 years in jail, even if that person is your child. We are in utter, absolute rebellion against any sense of an external authority. Jesus is showing us the way here of responding to that external authority when it hurts, when it's difficult, And so back to parents, wise parents knowingly steer their children to perceive that where they go, what they touch, how they treat people and the like is ordered by an authority outside themselves. Now that's done graciously. It can be done in the wrong way, just as far the pendulum swinging that way as it's swinging in our day. But there's no question which way the pendulum has swung. Wise parents come to recognize, and those who handle marriage and every other area of response, we come to realize that man does not live by bread alone. We must not live by whatever cravings take hold of our souls. We live by the bread of God's life-giving Word. And where we fail, there is forgiveness of sin. And we praise God for that. But secondly, in Jesus' example, we find the call to deploy God's word against the lure of spiritual presumption, testing God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, there again, since you are the Son of God, this is what's been stated, well, prove it. Throw yourself down, for it is written, Now, Jesus, you, you like, Quoting scripture, let me quote some to you. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Psalm 91. We don't know precisely where this location is, if this was a, a vision or if this was literally the case or how they would have gotten there, but uh, very possibly the wing of the temple, as it's called, this was likely the roof of what was called the royal portico of Herod's palace, which, was, which formed the southeast wall of the temple complex. So if you take from the Cadron Valley below and you work yourself up the, the sides of the slope, you come to the base, the foundation walls, which then rise, and then on top of those foundation walls is this palace, and you get up onto the roof, you're looking down at about four, 45 stories. If you're on a building of 45 stories and you're standing there on the corner, that's perhaps where they stand. But whatever the case, again, Satan is very concerned about Christ's status as the Son of God. He seems to respond to Jesus' appeal to Scripture in the preceding temptation. You trust Scripture? Let's try Psalm 91. Jump off. We'll see if God catches you. Prove that you're the Son of God. You are God. So jump off. What he's really pushing Jesus to do is to say, Father, I'm going to jump and you're going to catch me. The Father had not brought him there to jump off of that place. This was not part of God's plan. It wasn't essential. It was just exhibitionism. And so what Jesus would be doing is pressing the Father to do what he wanted him to do in that moment. But we notice again that Jesus takes his stand. And how does he take his stand? He takes it upon the written word. Verse 7, Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, to jump from this height would be to dictate terms to God, to play the exhibitionist. Just as he could have made bread out of stones, he could have jumped from this building but this was not God's will. It would presume upon God. And so he says no. He will not go with autonomous initiative. But passes on this temptation. Now there, there is a side principle which I think is important to bring in in the series that we're in. And that's that the Bible never contradicts itself. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, well you have Psalm 91 and I got Deuteronomy 6 and they contradict each other, but no, of course not. Where there seems to be a contradiction in Scripture, it is simply because we're not understanding the context of one or both of the passages, or we are not appropriately and validly applying it to the situation. Though Jesus does not go into some debate here with Satan, at least not recorded for us. He's not saying that you have a point there with Psalm 91, but I'm going to trumpet with Deuteronomy 6. What he's saying is you don't know what you're talking about. You are using Scripture to get me to violate Scripture. That cannot be the case. That cannot happen. And so he sets him straight and makes it clear that we are not to act presumptuously. We are not to put God to the test. We are not to say, I have my nose aimed at sin and I'm going to do it or I'm not going to do it unless God stops me. Don't put God to the test. He won't do it. Thirdly, we learn from Jesus to deploy God's word against the lure of false worship. 
verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now this may have been a vision or more simply it may have been an unusually clear day in Israel from which, from which place you could well see Jews and Gentiles living out in the various places there in that very small land. Whatever the case, that's uh, in any event, it seems that Satan makes a legitimate offer here to Jesus. In one sense, he is the God of this world and wields considerable power over the nations. So Satan claims that he will relinquish that power. Whatever power he has, I will relinquish it. I will give it to you. If you will just prostrate yourself before me, if you will just bow and say, I'm superior. I'm the exalted one. Just that simple move here. Wow. I mean, of the three temptations, this one seems most obviously wrong. And yet is perhaps the hardest to resist. Jesus would do so much good. Eliminate so much suffering, spare so many people, so much trouble. Is it too high a price to pay to simply humble himself before Satan? He'd do so much good. But yes, it would be wrong. First, because the end never justifies the means. The end of sparing so much suffering and trial and wickedness in the nations of the world does not justify worshiping Satan even for five seconds. And secondly, this was an enticement, I think, ultimately, to establish Christ's kingdom on earth without His sacrificial death in the place of sinners. The height of this particular temptation, of course, comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus pleading there, Deliver me. If possible, take this cup from me. This is the start of that temptation which will come to fruition in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here on the mountain, it is a temptation to take this cup away, to gain control in His kingdom over the nations of the earth without the cross. I'll help you avoid that cup, Satan says. I'll let you do a really good thing in your eyes to take control of this world if you will just for a moment worship me. Praise God Jesus stood his ground. And how it reveals to us how vile Satan is. He's willing to crush the gospel which is utterly necessary for our salvation. We could live our lives in this world very happily under Christ's rule and lordship without the cross and die and enter an eternity without Him and lose it all. But Christ stands. He stands His ground and He does so again, verse 10, on the Word of God. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6.13 God's external written word is Jesus' appeal. I cannot go for that deal. I cannot do that because to do so would violate the Word of God. 
No matter the end that might be achieved, Jesus will not yield to this idolatrous means. He will not bypass the cross. And so he faces what is for us a common temptation to choose something that looks good and noble on the surface in exchange for the fuller reward that comes at the end of genuine faithfulness. The common temptation to choose faulty means to accomplish what looks like good ends but are really just idolatrous shortcuts. One illustration that comes rapidly to mind is euthanasia, which so ironically referred to as mercy killing. It's actually an idolatrous worship of self to take life in our own hands and to act as if we are God. There's a place for someone to die, of course, and for us to let go, but not in that way. It's a what seems to be a good end achieved in a way that is idolatrous. And we find in the end that Satan then is vanquished for the time. He will be back. More temptations would come, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here we read in verse 11 that the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That word ministering is often found in context of feeding and food. And so it seems that they are nursing him back to health. And Jesus stands his ground three times on the Word of God. Three times Jesus, the Son of God, appeals to the external written Word. Let me ask just a few questions here as we meditate for a bit longer on what we've seen. A familiar passage, certainly, but one we must take to heart. First of all, we must ask, did Jesus face real temptation or was this just an act? I mean, he's God and he's just kind of going through the motions and showing us maybe how to do it, but doesn't really affect him. He's God, after all. No, I don't think that's true. I think he did face this temptation seriously and really he was every bit as human as we are indeed he suffered a more thorough temptation than anything we will ever know because jesus drained the cup of the temptation to the bitter end god providentially limits the intensity of our temptations thankfully but were we ever to face the full fury of satan's onslaught we would cave in before we beat it Indeed, we often cave in at the very lightest of temptations. But Jesus endured the full and total force of Satan's temptation and he stood true to the Father on these three assaults. He was truly tempted. In his humanity, he sensed it, he knew it. Well, we asked then secondly, could Jesus have chosen to sin? It's a complicated question in some ways, but the answer is no. Jesus had a human nature and divine nature. His human nature was susceptible to temptation. His divine nature was not. Now, it's not that the divine nature kind of overwhelmed the human nature. We should not think that way. They're both totally viable at all times. His human nature faced, however, this temptation fully. In his humanity, he was susceptible to temptation. Now remember, in his humanity, it's without sin. As with Adam, not as with Dan. 
It makes sense that before the fall, as Adam could have sinned, he, uh, Jesus, like Adam, was able not to sin. We'd say it that way. In his humanity, he was able not to sin, but in his humanity, he faced this temptation. He truly experienced it. It was tempting to him to eat. It was tempting to him to jump off that pinnacle. It was tempting to him to rescue the world without the cross. But as the Son of God in His divine nature, Jesus was not able to sin. And we must insist on that. God cannot be tempted with evil. And when we begin to, to, to uh, compromise those positions, all sorts of heresy nips at the edges and begins to overtake the true doctrine. So, no, He could not sin ultimately because of His divine nature. But in His human nature, He faced that sin. It was real. Thirdly, What does Jesus stand against Satan's temptation mean to us? We remember Adam and Eve in the perfect environment. Well-fed. Ideal support from one another. Compared to Christ in the wilderness. Alone. Starving. And perfect obedience. Indeed, through His suffering. This is what we gain. This is what it means to us. There's a direct connection. We read in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect tempted as we are. He could look into the eyes of every one of us, and not that he has had every experience that we've had, but he could look into your eyes and into mine and say, I get it. I understand it. I know what it means to face temptation. I know what it means to want, to desire what God does not want for you. I get it. I understand. So... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't turn in our sin as we're struggling with it, as we find it difficult to break loose. We don't turn to God in our sin and find His back. His arms crossed, looking the other way, going, I don't know what your problem is. I don't understand this. Would you just get your act together? Never. We go to the throne of grace and there is there a Savior who understands our temptation. He gets it. Go to Him. Talk to Him. Hear His Word. What does it mean to us? Hebrews 5, although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. He learned to trust and obey the external Word of God through the suffering of these temptations, for instance. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Obey him, that is, in trusting belief in his word and his saving grace. So if you've not trusted that saving grace, if you've not come to that place of the obedience of faith in his eternal salvation, he is that source. You need that salvation for you have broken God's law. The lying, the hatred, the selfishness, the sensuality, the greed, the failure 
and even refusal to worship God as King of kings and Lord of lords, the King of kings that He is. He is your creator. He is your final judge. And you have not lived a life that demonstrates that reality. Jesus was in that situation, the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty of the sins of His people for those who trust Him to give them this eternal salvation. It's not found in you. It's found in Him. Number four, what does Jesus stand against temptation teach us in our fight against sin? For those who have trusted that eternal salvation have come to know the Lord in that way. What does this stand against sin teach us? We too face temptations of the flesh, of presumption, of idolatrous worship. We face these temptations. And when we do, we remember Jesus. What did He do? He did not employ miraculous powers. What He did was meditate upon God's written word and that was enough the written word of god was his only sword not incantations sensational gimmicks miracles there to chase satan away he went to the external written word he knew god's word he meditated upon god's word he was able to quote that external authoritative word when facing temptation and so, as he learned obedience, he passes on to us that same process, running to the one who understands our temptation and applying his external written word to that temptation. He assures us then, as James put it, that we submit ourselves to God resisting the devil. He will flee from you, Matthew 4.11 or 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Pull out the incantations, pray for a miracle. What do we do? Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. How do we resist him? Here it is. Turn to the Word of God. Stand on that written word. If the Son of Man fought temptation by quoting Scripture, not magically, but saying, this is what God says and I'm going to obey it. If the Son of Man fought temptation that way, who are we to fight it any other way? How would we think that we're going to win apart from that word from the Lord? So in the Garden of Eden, God's Word was twisted and it was discarded. But in this wilderness setting, God's Word was quoted. Jesus stood on it. And it is then our challenge to live that way. To know that it's not getting in touch with me on the inside that determines truth. My own intuitions and cravings but it's looking outside of myself. I'm indeed the problem. But I look outside of myself to the Savior whose external authoritative written word are my marching orders. And they're marching orders toward life. Choose life as Jesus did. 
in dependence upon that word. And I would say that just by way of very practical application at this point, you know your sin struggle. If you're a believer, if you've walked with the Lord, the conviction has been there for years. You know where you're weak. You know what your struggles are. Do you have an arsenal of biblical text that you know and can apply when under that assault? If not, you got a project this afternoon, this week. Put together specific texts that you know speak directly to your sexual temptation, to your depression, to your greed, to being discontent in all things. Turn to the words that God has spoken as truth, to the commands that He gives, and to the promises that He leaves, and use His word as a sword against Satan. As you do, you will resist Him, and He will flee. Not magically. It's a long game. It takes grace. It takes growth. But day by day, applying the word against that temptation, we stand. By the grace of God alone. We thank you, Father, for this supply, for this support that we have in your word, and for the fact that we are coming to see how Twisted and messed up is our internal desires and normal way forward and how beautiful is your counsel and your truth that kept Jesus from failing as the Savior and that is now our example. May we learn to fight against the sins of the flesh and of pride, against the sin of our own self-autonomy. I pray that you would teach us to walk in a manner that is worthy of you as we find that revealed to us in your word. Thank you for your word. It is our life. And as we're learning to see it as that external authoritative source of life that stands above us and outside of us, Lord, what happy people we are. We thank you that we can rejoice in that reality and know how miserably we fall when we try to be our own God. But we thank you that you are our God, that you give us life in the Son, that you give us your word by your Spirit, and that you are sanctifying us. Help us to fight rightly to that end and resist the devil. For those who know not Christ, we pray that you'd open their eyes and enlighten them to this salvation that is outside of them and that is given freely and eternally in Christ, in whose name we pray.